welcome to Endpoint Management Today. My name is Rhonda Studnick Kaiser, and I am the Director of Customer Experience for BigFix. And I'm James Stewart, BigFix Python expert. Today, we want to introduce you to Robert Leong, Director of Product Management for BigFix and self-described MIT nerd. Welcome, Robert. <laughs> hey, James. Hi, Rhonda. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So, Robert, can you tell us kind of how you got into science and math sort of early on in your career? Thanks, Rhonda. That's a great question. Let me think about that. I'm probably going to pick something out of high school. Maybe the audience can relate to this. But uh, when I was in high school, they gave us an essay assignment. They they told us to write about something that we thought was uh, really interesting and it was a it was for a midterm assignment and we were supposed to write an essay about something that was fascinating to you and i wrote about some technical subject i i think it was probably like photography or electronics or how transistors work or something anyway i turned in the paper i'd worked really hard on it and i got it back and she marked a great big b on the front and I was devastated because I'd worked so hard on it. And, and uh, I went to my English teacher and I said, excuse me, could I, could I ask you a question? And she said, sure, what's going on? And I, I said, well, I, I got a B on this paper. She says, well, that's a pretty decent grade. What, what's the problem? I said, well, I, I thought it was an A paper. She said, well, hang on, let, let me see your paper. So I handed it to her and she looks it over and she says, Oh, I, I see. Uh, the, the paper is actually technically really well written, but your choice of topic was boring. I, I didn't think it was interesting at all. That seems a little unfair. Yeah, yeah you're right. And I was, I was stunned. And, and I said, I, excuse me, ma'am, but with respect, you, you asked me to pick a topic that I found interesting, not one that you found interesting. And and if you wanted me to write about something you found interesting, you should have given me a list of things that you find interesting, because I picked a topic that I found was fascinated by. And she said, "You're really fascinated by this." <laughs> this stopped her dead in her tracks, and she looked at me and she said, "I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I. This is a fascinating topic for me." And she smiled and she said, "You know, I." I, I've never thought of that. And you're right. And she, no, she didn't change my grade, but I noticed I started getting A's on other assignments because she said she would take that into account that, you know, I might find things interesting that she didn't. Okay. This is a long way of saying that I realized right at that moment that her grading of me was based on subjective criteria, but in things like math and science, it's quantitative. If I solve all the equations on the on the math quiz, I get full marks. It's not up for debate. If I solve the <laughs> nonlinear equation, I solved it, right? It's correct. You get the A, period, end of statement. So that just like totally leaned me into science and math. So yeah, that's the story. You're not comfortable in the gray at all. I tend to not be. Uh, sometimes my family um, tells me that uh, that's a problem in my parenting, but yeah, that, that's a different story. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you were a kid, it, it seems like you were interested in math and science, but were you interested in other, you know, 
technical electronics, computers, stuff like that. Oh yeah, totally. I, I, I was one of the kids that as a, as a kid, I was, a, I was a nerd. I developed an electronics and computer obsession because you're sitting there and you're watching your, you know, you're watching Star Trek, like on the television and you sit there and you're like, well, how is the picture getting in there? And so, yes, I, uh, I, I'm surprised my parents let me do this, but I would like, I took the, I, I turned the TV around, pulled the back off and started yanking stuff apart. And uh, I'm surprised I didn't electrocute myself or anything, but I pulled the TV apart. I pulled the radio apart. I pulled my dad's stereo apart. I pulled his uh, AM FM clock radio apart, and, and I, I, I admit I broke it. <laughs> I fixed it later, though. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the whole thing is I wanted to figure out how it worked or how to make it better or to fix it if it was broken. And it, it just it's it's an obsession that continues to this day. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Like my grandfather was an electrical engineer and he was the same way growing up. Like he would pull things apart and put them back together. But at least in his case, they would work when he put them back together, <laughs> where in my case, not so much. Yes. And so that kind of steered me away from the EE field and uh, more into development. But yeah, like I, it was really just fascinating to hear him talk about uh, how people would drop off their broken electronics to him and he would go and solder them and fix them and stuff. And that he like, uh, basically did that as a, you know, a paid gig during college and stuff like that. And that's really that's cool. cool. Yeah. I, I admit that my kids, um, when they were little, they would call dad, Mr. Fix it. And, uh, I don't know if you ever, watched red busy town but there, there's a character i think he's a fox and he's mr fix it and he fixes everything and uh yeah i've always been obsessed with uh with electronics with computers with programming and it, it really came home because a few years ago my son came home for the summer after his freshman year in college and uh, he was actually following in my footsteps majoring in electrical engineering and he said hey dad i have a question for you and i said sure son what's up he goes was electronics a hobby for you when you were a kid and i said uh well what do you what do you mean a hobby and he goes well did you design and build circuits just for fun and i'm like oh yeah oh yeah i designed lots of stuff i built stuff for the telephone i built stuff for the car i built stuff around the house i you know i'd go and you know build breadboards and print circuit boards and stuff i yeah tons of stuff you bet. Uh, I even designed circuits for my friends at school for their thesis just to help them out because it was fun. And he, he said, oh, I think I'm in the wrong major. So anyway, he switched from double E to computer science. So uh, it's it's an obsession. I'm glad I had that realization before I got to college uh, inst instead of after. That's right. I got I got to pay for an extra year because so, he, yeah, yeah. he changed changed majors. It was really funny. He goes up, gets, gets his degree, and he said, I would like to thank my mother and father for paying for an extra year of college because I changed my mind. <laughs> so well, he's a good kid. So, Robert, I hear you describe yourself as a nerd. Are you also a geek? What's the difference to you? Ah, that's that's a good question. 
a, not too long ago, I actually was flipping through YouTube, and there's this really funny guy. Well, funny to me, okay? His name's Don McMillan, and he's on, I think, uh, Dry Bar Comedy. And he's a guy who went from being a chip designer to a stand-up comedian, and he defined it really nicely. There are definitely differences between nerds and geeks. And the way that he defines it resonates with me. Here's how you think about it. There are three things that make up a nerd. One... Nerds are reasonably smart. Two, nerds have obsessions. And three, nerds are socially awkward. And I, I admit that from early on, I always had all three attributes. And the difference is that geeks aren't socially awkward. So they're reasonably smart and they have obsessions, but they're not socially awkward. That's why you see trekkers and cosplay folks and, and, and uh, people who they're smart and they're obsessed with Star Trek. They're obsessed with Star Wars, but they're not socially awkward. That's why they get together. They have symposiums, meetings, parties, uh, fun times getting together. So they're geeks. But if you add social awkwardness, then you're a nerd. And geeks and nerds tend to congregate together. But I thought that's a really useful way to think about it. Yeah, that is, uh, I've seen that same, uh, clip and it is a kind of interesting way to like reframe it and think about where you fit in the categorization yourself, if at all. Yeah, that's, it was very useful to think about. I never thought about some of the other combinations because he, you know, he drew this, uh, the Venn diagram and he says there are other combinations. If you have a good IQ and you're socially awkward, that combination is a dork. And if you're socially awkward and you're obsessed, then you're a stalker. And I have to admit that made me laugh out loud. Um, I showed the clip to my wife. She did not have the same reaction. She just thought it was weird. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. So, hey, Robert, um, can you tell us about your college experience? Obviously, you introduced yourself as an MIT nerd. So I assume that means you went to MIT, which is Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I think. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can tell us a little bit about college and what, what happened when you were in Cambridge. Yes, Cambridge. I, I had a, a great time there. The I, I had a chance to go and spend time with some of my heroes. One of my heroes growing up is, is maybe it's a little bit weird, but uh, it was uh, uh, Dr. Professor Harold Edgerton. He invented the strobe and I got to be his teaching assistant. And that was just so much fun to run in, uh, in strobe lab. It was a fantastic college experience. Now, MIT has always been essentially a magnet for geeks and nerds who have obsessions in technology. And uh, as I mentioned, part of the reason why I le learned toward leaned toward engineering is that it's quantitative and it's stuff about you. You can calculate things, you can make equations about it. And uh, MIT allowed me to just essentially double down on my obsession with science and math. And and I majored in electrical engineering and computer science. And, and it was so much fun <laughs> that I just went off into graduate school and got more degrees in computer science and electrical engineering. So uh, bottom line is that if I found that if you work hard, you're reasonably smart. If you're a nerd and you had a, have an obsession in those areas, then you might end up at MIT. And I applied. And what I got in, my dad slapped me on the shoulder and said, good job, kid. Uh, that's where you're going. And, you know, off you go to MIT. My, my mom actually started crying. 
that's because she realized that uh, Boston slash Cambridge is uh, 3,500 miles away, <laughs> that she wasn't going to see me as much. So it's kind of sweet. I still remember her uh, in the doorway weeping. <laughs> but I had a great time there, and I, and I actually did come back uh, to Portland, oddly enough. Was there any like specific projects that you ended up working on in college? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I was super nerd, so I did simultaneously bachelor's and master's in what MIT calls course six. And I had a great time to, to I, I was designing optical circuits, uh, 3D display research, and it was really fun because, and this is dating me a little bit, but it's really the precursor to all the flat panel television stuff that we have now, all the VR stuff that you have now. I worked on a lot of the basic research that was uh, involved with with a lot of that sort of technology. And that was, I, I just had a great time. So do you mean like LCDs or yes. OLED or oh, something yes, like yes. that? I was at MIT in the, what do they call it? The uh, 61A program, which is their, it's, it's where they, you partner up and you actually do work in industry, I was in display research, believe it or not, at Tektronics, and they were doing a ton of work on organic LED and um, on 3D imaging and how does the brain perceive three dimensions, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I was in grad school, that's the sort of research I was doing. It was, re it was really cool. Very cool. Now, I didn't continue in those areas because... I sat there and said, okay, how long is it going to take this to get to the market? And uh, I reckoned it would take decades. And, and, and I was right. <laughs> it took decades. And I didn't want to wait that long. I was too impatient. I was young, too impatient. You were, you were doing market analysis even oh, then. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't I, I didn't think it. about it. I didn't think about it, Rhonda, but that's, that's true. That's true. I was like, it's just going to, the glide path was just too long. That's that's funny, uh, unintentional, unintentional. Uh, yeah, lead into your future career. Yeah, product there management. Yeah. There you go. So tell us about your early career because it sounds like you graduated, and I know Tektronix, having grown up and lived in Oregon my whole life, and not everybody knows Tektronix unless you're super geeky. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. Stuff like that, right? That's true. So. But uh, it sounds like there was some transition Absolutely. there into so, Tektronix. Uh, yes, yes. My early career was doing in the research arm of Tektronix, which, believe it or not, at that time, they had 24,000 employees. And I also worked as a design engineer for uh, Mentor Graphics, which was actually, a lot of people don't know this, uh, it's part of Siemens now, but it was a Tektronix spinoff. And Mentor Graphics is a company that they do uh, stuff for electrical engineering, for computer, for, for design. So they do simulators for circuit design. And okay, I guess it's a little bit um, self-serving, <laughs> but I thought it would be fun to be a design engineer in an industry whose whole goal was to build tools for, well, me. <laughs> and it was great. I got to do ASIC design, uh, IC design, printed circuit board design, firmware, software design. So I got to design lots of stuff at Tektronix and Mentor Graphics, and it was a blast. So why did you decide to s switch and become a product manager instead of a circuit designer? Okay, here's the story. I was at Mentor Graphics, 
and I had worked myself up to a senior or lead engineer, and I was the engineering lead for a small team, but it was all self-contained. We we could design lots of stuff. If you said you need to design ASICs, chips, uh, printed circuit boards, firmware, software, and we, we could design all sorts of stuff. And the company, Mentor, had just hired a new product manager, and he asked to meet with me uh, as the leader of the team. And then I got together with him, and he showed me uh, some specs and requirements for something that was really complicated. I estimated that it was probably going to be at least two to three uh, ASICs, and you know, ASICs are going to have like multi-million dollar uh, non-recurring engineering costs. And and I was looking at this and saying, this is going to be a really long project, maybe a year and a half, two years. And my conversation with him went something like this. He says, all right, so this is what I want you to design. Can you and your team design this? And I said, sure, absolutely. My team can do this. It, it would be a big project though. It'd probably take us a year and a half or more. Uh, I do have a question. He goes, what? I said, what exactly, what problem does this solve for the customer? And his answer was, that's not your concern. And I was. <laughs> that, that that didn't fly. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I was actually, I, I just thinking in my mind's eye, I was stunned because uh, I didn't think anyone would say that. What? What problem does it solve? And that's not your concern. And I said, well, okay, with, with respect, it's everybody's concern. Why would someone buy this? What problem do they have that they would need this? And he just said, well, why do you care? And I said, well, okay, Mentor Graphics is a company that builds stuff for design engineers. And I am a design engineer. And, and quite frankly, for the life of me, I can't figure out what I would use it for or anyone I know would use it for. And he goes, well, <laughs> you're not a customer. I said, well, I, I'm not paying for use of this thing, but I would certainly be an in-house user. And if your in-house user can't figure out why they or any of their team members would use it or any they, anyone they know would use it, then I don't understand what problem it's supposed to solve, why anyone would pay for it. And if we built this and no one buys it, then it's just going to be this colossal waste of time. So I suggested a compromise and I said, listen, just let me chat or interview a prospective user for 10, 15 minutes. That's all I'll need. And, th and then, then we can continue. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's definitely what we like to do is, you know, make sure that we're solving our customers needs because that seems pretty core to what we do. Well, that makes sense to you, James. But he, what he said was, no way. Only product managers and salespeople talk to customers. You're not either. You're not a product manager. You and your team do what I tell you to do. And if you're either too lazy or too stupid to do it, I'll just make sure you're fired. And that's so, he, you know, he powered up. He alphaed up on me. And I was like, what? And anyway, the, the conversation ended badly. And I went home to my lovely wife. We were newlyweds at the time. I recounted it all to her. And then she said some very fateful words, which were, hey, honey, maybe you should think about a career change. I think you would make a great product manager. Hmm. <laughs> that was that. It was like a light bulb? Yeah. I was like, well, I mean, come on. When you're in school and you're doing triple integrals and Fourier transforms and Laplace transforms and all this, you 
you don't really think about the fact that someone in business is going to be telling you this is what you need to build and that generally engineering doesn't have a voice in it. So anyway, I made a career change. I've now spent a lot of years applying science to the world of product management with the goal of being able to measure accurately what widespread urgent problems the market is willing to pay for, as well as why and how we know that. And I, I had no idea that the business side would be telling the technical side what they're going to be working on and that oftentimes the business side has no scientific processes or tools to try and suss out why uh, what they're saying is correct why what this is what you should be working on why is that uh, more important than something else so that becomes my new obsession that became my new passion i was obsessed with linking the science and business sides together in product management and that's what i've been doing for years and years yeah it's it's interesting how the business side is like such a fundamental part of everything and they really say that like having good understanding of business is important. Having good understanding of like public speaking is important. And I think these days, like tech in general is also unavoidable and a kind of a core part of every job to some degree. And so like you have these different pieces that like, you don't have to be an expert in either one of them necessarily, but if you have some understanding of them on top of whatever your core is, it's really going to like help you a ton I completely relating to every part. Totally agree. Totally agree. And it's interesting that that has become this balanced approach, as you're saying, James, is more of an approach that we've seen change in our lifetimes because it was much more. I mean, basically, a lot of people were like getting double E degrees and they never took any business classes or anything. Uh, oddly enough, I did. I took quite a few classes at Sloan School at, at MIT, but that was always an interest for me. So changing to uh, being a product manager wasn't really that big of a deal from a uh, mindset change point of view. It's really interesting, though, that that whole conversation and and what you did there, because you know, it's one of the things that I I love about what we do here at Big Fix is that we like we don't shield our engineers from the actual business problems that we're trying to solve with the product. I mean, yeah, we want them to be coding away, beavering away as as one of our colleagues says, beavering <laughs> away on whatever it is that they're doing. Brian Shorey, but, beavering um, away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but 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 we want them like understanding the real world implications of what they're building. That's why we have so many engineers and support teams and other people who are client advocates even because, and we want them engaged, seeing the real consequences of the stuff that we put on the market, seeing the pain points. And, and it's central even to my discussions. We were having a a technical discussion with a customer just yesterday and he was telling us all about the technology he needed. I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, can you tell me the business process like who's asking you for this Mm -hmm. what are you what do you solve when you get Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. and it it opened up an entirely different perspective on what they actually needed which caused the conversation to go in an entirely different way so it's it's it it i don't know if that's just because we're very forward looking here at big fix or if that's just where we've come from with our management style because some so many of our managers we used to be engineers and so we 
we want people to know. I, you know, I'm not sure exactly where it stems from. I think it's probably a little bit of both, Rhonda, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just really interesting. Cool. Agreed. So obviously now you work here with Big Fix. What, what did you like about Big Fix? What brought you aboard? Uh, Thanks, James. I, I, I came to Big Fix because I saw tremendous potential with the whole Big Fix family to solve some really huge, gnarly, messy problems that sit at the at a triple intersection of security, SecOps, IT ops, and business and business management. Because I've spent so much time as a PM interviewing the market. And I would interview uh, the CISO, the SecOps team's members, the uh, analysts, the um, uh, threat intelligence analysts, the head of IT ops, and I would interview CEOs. And I'm finding that everybody's trying to make sense of everything from their angle. The CEO is trying to make sense of it from the business angle, the CISO from the security angle, head of IT ops from the operational business angle. And I I like Big Fix because we really have the chance, and and I saw this from the outside, that there was the chance to help SecOps and IT ops to align and to make it actionable for the CEO running the business. The CEO should be able to manage the balance between security and business and operate on a much more effective level. And I I haven't seen that in the market. I haven't seen, uh, yes, we have stuff that works for security. Yes, we have stuff that works for IT operations. But do we have something that does both of those and also makes decisions for the CEO a lot easier? What, What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that I viewed that there was a linkage that the linkage to business value is a blind spot in cybersecurity and IT ops. And I know a lot of the problems there just from talking to people. And I felt that Big Fix was actually in a position to change that. Very cool. The other thing, and, and now that you ask, the other thing that I like is that Big Fix, it has, it, it has a very big family feel. I, I like the fact that it's, it seems like there's this big, <laughs> slightly nerdy family of enthusiasts who are absolutely <laughs> committed and to helping customers. I mean, I, what was that? It was one of the things. Was it, was it Kathy wrote the, you know, my love letter to Big Fix? And that, of course, I, I read that before I joined. And, uh, was that Kathy Wynn who wrote that? I think it was. And it was my love letter to Big Fix. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I read it and it was, <laughs> it was, it was really, uh, showed a level of passion there that there was this giant family of passionate enthusiasts that they were seeking to solve big headaches in, uh, in the various spaces related to Big Fix. So I, I, I got this sense that it was not just filled with nerds and a few geeks, but, they're obsessed with solving problems. They're in a space that we inhabit and that uh, people were we're, actually passionate about it. And and they're friendly. That's the other thing that I got was that people (laughs) were, you know, they were just really, um, when I, when I interviewed the senior management, they just really, they were just really personable. And, um, that was great. I haven't met any stalkers yet, so that's good. I might be considered a stalker just because I spend so much time out on the forum and on uh, and on Slack looking for things that I pass on to people like you and the other product managers. It's all good, Ron. 
So, Robert, um, you know, uh, like you said, you've been here, what, about a year now? Just past a year, yeah. So what do you see, you know, in, I guess, uh, uh, in the trajectory of our future that you're really excited about? Well, what I'm really excited about is our ability to actually solve problems that I've been listening to for years. So I, I just came off of an, you know, seven, eight year stint at McAfee slash Intel security slash, what are they calling themselves? Trellix. And what I, what I've heard from both big fix customers as well as prospective customers is that there's a ton, just a ton of unresolved problems that sit right at the crossroads, um, where big fix plays, as I mentioned before. So when, let me just give you an example. The SecOps teams, what do I hear them say? I hear them say, I can't tell whether my security requests are being prioritized by IT ops. And I, I can't get IT ops to pay attention or prioritize my needs. And then I hear IT ops saying, uh, you know, doing reporting on security projects, vulnerability patching as an example, it's manual, it's a pain, we don't like doing it, there's a ton of overhead. They, I hear IT ops saying there's too many tools. There are not enough unification of the process and functions. And then I hear the CEO saying, I can't see where my direct investments are improving business value delivery and business risk posture, cyber risk posture. I can't see if security and business are in balance and I can't manage against any sort of balance. I'm, I'm, I'm blind. I can't see any of this. So I'm excited because I think we have a fantastic opportunity to solve all three sets of problems essentially at the same time and, and, and to acid test those with the market. So there's a, there's, uh, you will see coming from us a bunch of automation and decision support systems and executive decision systems with that just solve a massive number of problems that can really only be tackled with big fix because of where it sits. So you'll start seeing a lot of initiatives that are kicked off. And I'm really excited about those because we're really starting to get, you know, kind of our sea legs underneath us and, and starting to all row in the same direction. And I just couldn't be more excited about it all. All of that and still doing what we do best, which is control and remediate. Get it done, get it fixed, get it out of the <laughs> way right. so we can focus on the next That's thing. That's right. So, yeah. It's There's always evolution. something next. Yeah. Big fix dot next. That's right. There you go. So what tech things interest you outside of your job? F- funny that you ask because I just finished helping my brother uh, take macro pictures of sushi for a sushi restaurant that he's a co-owner nice. in. And so, yeah, I really enjoy digital photography. That's one passion. Uh, as I mentioned, my favorite professor at MIT was uh, Harold Edgerton, who invented the strobe. And I've always been fascinated with photography. So I was like the nerdy kid. Uh, I think I was like 10 years old. I set up a photo darkroom in the basement of the house and developed black and white photos and of course, photo photography has gone from being a chemistry-based art form into a bits and bytes art form. And if you think about modern day digital SLRs, they're, they're basically PCs that happen to have a light sensor and a lens attached. And I've always just loved all the technical aspects of it, the you know, f-stop, focal length, 
ISO, shutter speed, everything. And that's just, it's just been, I love the technical aspect of it. And I love the art form aspect of it because you're taking pictures as I am of organic objects. How do you make it beautiful? How, how do you make it um, stunning so that someone says, wow. So I, I do believe that photography is as um, Ansel Adams, one of my favorite photographers says, it's the art of knowing where to stand. So I would submit it is also knowing exactly how to set up your equipment so you will get the shot that you want. So timing, location, light. I, I love that you it's 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 uh, qualitative and quantitative if I'm going to be nerdy about it. But it's all about the art and the science all connected together. Yeah, for me, I'm a big fan of photography. And it oh, wasn't cool. until the, the moment that I picked up a DSLR for the first time. Mm -hmm and used it that I really understood because before that I'd used, you know, point and shoot cameras or film cameras. And it's like, I, I kind of get it, but I don't really get it. Mm -hmm, like it's, mm -hmm. it's okay. It's fine. It's whatever. But the first time I looked up or used a digital SLR was, was different because with an SLR, when you're looking through the viewfinder, you're actually looking out through the lens mm -hmm. that you're shooting the photo with. And that the first time I did that, it was like transformative to me in part because it was also a digital SLR. And as soon as I snapped the photo, I could then look at the view screen or at the resulting digital image on the back and see that I had captured exactly what I saw <laughs> and exactly the way I'd zoomed and exactly the way I'd framed and exactly everything lined up. And then I, I, I captured it and I looked and oh, well, it was right there where I'd never had that experience before because every other time before that, when I was using like a point and shoot, it's not actually through the lens. So it's not a one-to-one -one representation. And also with like a film camera, it's not instantaneous feedback. Right. But as soon as I had that instantaneous feedback of capturing exactly what I saw, I was like, Oh my God, I understand it's all what through. is happening. Yeah. And, and, and for SLR shooters are, they, they, they love that as well. I think there's, What's the phrase? They say uh, chimping. That's what it is. Ooh, ooh, ee, ee. And, and as soon as you take the picture, then you, you're crouched over looking at the image on the back to see what you got. And uh, I believe that's referred to as chimping. So uh, I, also, yeah. I also enjoy the development and artsy side of it. So once you grab the image, where do you go from there? And I just love everything from editing the shot for color balance, saturation, contrast, you know, just all of that Photoshop work. It's, it's a lot of fun. I, I do, I admit I run a professional studio on the side. That's, that's, uh, that means I actually accept money <laughs> for taking shots, but it all started when my kids were little and I realized they were growing up so quickly and it seemed like I would wake up and they would be different. And so I decided to chronicle the family journey in photos. And I took my first deep dive into digital photography when the kids were small and it went something like this. I, I just saw them. I saw them growing up and like my kids just look older the next day. And I, I went to my wife and I said, honey, I need to get a decent digital camera. And she's so sweet. She said, honey, there's something on sale at Costco for 300 bucks. <laughs> I said, no, you, you don't understand. This is going to cost a few thousand. She goes, what? Mm -hmm. What? Do you really need to spend that much money? And I, I wasn't trying to be snarky. I, I just said, honey, I'm just looking at the kids and I'm just thinking they're only young once. And it, and it turned out okay. 
because people ended up liking my photos because, you know, not everybody does, does you like their photos because they're, you know, your style. And they started hiring me for portraits and event work and, and sporting events. And it ended up paying for all the gear. So my big obsession photography ended up paying for itself. So uh, my wife's happy because it's not costing extra cash. And my that my kids are happy because there's lots of photos that they can share with their friends. So it, it all turned out okay. It's impressive that it paid for itself because when you kind of jump into the like a little bit past the prosumer market yeah. <laughs> and you start getting into the professional market, yep. people don't really understand like the scope of it because, you know, like my wife is a professional photographer at, and oh, cool. We have like, you know, a lens that's like a thousand dollars and a yep. flash that's like, you know, $700. Yep. And like that's yep. not even talking about the camera. Yep. Like the yep. camera yep. is very expensive. And you kind of like, you can see the difference in what you get and like how it works and how it functions and all of it's like in pursuit of the art. But, you know, for me, like I'm, I'm like not the one into the artistry so much. Mm -hmm. I'm more into like the technical aspect and I like sometimes accidentally do something artistic or <laughs> my wife, my wife is much more the like artistic focused person. And, yes. you know, sometimes the tech gets in the way of that. Yeah, and yeah that's right. For me, I. I come from it from like the exact opposite angle. Well, you guys should get together and then you can blend <laughs> the two because I, exactly. I think, I think that uh, I, I've known people who have a really, like a really great eye, but they don't know how to set the camera to get what they want. And I know people who are really techie, but they, they don't have an eye for patterns. And, and photography, of course, is all about light and it's about patterns and it's about, you know, shapes. So uh, it's, it's fun. Let's, let's just, suffice it to say that when I'm actually doing portraiture, like senior portraits and so on, then my wife is always great to have there because she's artsier than I am. And she'll say, well, what if you posed, what if you put your arm over here? And what if you went over here? Well, how about this background? And uh, 99 times out of 100, she's right. So <laughs> it works well. You guys just I need like to that. team up. That's all. Yep. My favorite camera is my iPhone. And that's all I have. I mean, I've had others, I guess, some of the digital cameras, but I love my iPhone. And it, what, you know, I can always just play with all the the things. But I also love the fact that I just take as many pictures as I want. Mm -hmm. And uh, like when we were in Italy, I started taking like close ups of like little pieces of marble on the floor oh, of some church uh -huh. or things like, like textures that. Like, and kind stuff. Of, yeah, textures yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. And so I have this whole like collection of like close ups of bricks and cool. I don't know, all kinds of just random stuff. And then and I'll zoom in really tight, you know, from really far mm -hmm, away, mm -hmm. get these really like distorted pictures and stuff. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun. But I am totally not an artist in any way, shape or form. Oh, it's I, just I, fun I'll, for me. We'll have to see your pictures and uh, we'll be the judge of that. I'll bet you've got some great stuff. But what that made me think of is that people often say, hey, what's your best camera? Because they'll see me with the SLR, you know, thousands of dollars worth of equipment. And they'll say, what's your best camera? And I'm like, uh, it's actually my iPhone. And they're like, why? And I'll bet that James knows the answer. Because uh, it's the one that you always have with you. That's right. Yes, because uh, it's it's just like you. if you don't have the camera, you can't take the shot. So if your phone's always with you, you can take the shot. So that is my best camera, even though I have, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear. So Yeah, the sad truth is these days the, the expensive gear sits collecting dust most of the time just because our phones are good enough most of the time. They are good enough most of the time. You are right about that, sir.
<laughs> so other than photography, Robert, what else do you do outside of work? Outside of work? Outside of work, I love to travel. Our whole family is a group that likes new experiences. So we will travel together as a family. I am married and have four kids. And uh, right now, I've committed that we will do a big trip every year and we'll go someplace exotic. And we have gone to Japan and we've gone to Europe and, you know, London, Paris. We've been all over the place and it, it does get a little bit spendy. So I do have to save up for it. But our whole family loves to travel. We're also a gang of uh, food, food nerds. So we are obsessed about it, and we like to get smart about our obsession for food. We like to travel all sorts of places. And it actually, it was funny because my wife says, well, I'm not a foodie. And it was because she had a slightly different definition. And the kids were like, no, Mommy, you are a foodie. And she says, no, I'm not a food snob. I, I will eat all sorts of stuff. And they said, no, foodie doesn't mean food snob. Food means, foodie means you like food. So we travel all sorts of places. We try different foods. We've traveled just everywhere, eating our way from country to country and having experiences together. So I, I like being the husband and dad of my family, hanging out, traveling, trying new foods. That's, that's, that's what we like to do outside of work. It's a lot of fun. That's awesome. I think to me, part of what makes it being like a foodie rather than just, you know, a food snob or something like that is like, you are there for the whole experience yes. and like experiencing new things is like what you care about, but it doesn't mean that it's like expensive or unusual. exactly, it, exactly. It's all about the new or, or sometimes it's like someone like inviting you over and cooking you a meal. That's like unique that you've never had. Before. Yes. Yes. And, and, and that experience of them like sharing with you in that way is also like a huge part of it as well. What you're pulling into is kind of, the, the way that we think of foodie. So I'm, I'm glad that we have that in common. It's, it's the entire experience. I mean, people eat not just with, you know, their mouth, obviously, but it's with their eyes and their ears and through the experience. And then you're, you know, you're with food tastes better. It's like when sometimes I, <laughs> when I'm on a long business trip, I'll call, call uh, my wife and said, my food just doesn't taste as good, honey, because you're not here. And she laughs at me, but it, it is true. It's just not fun sitting there at some place all by myself. It's, it's better when your family's there. It's better when your friends are there. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. My sister and I are both kind of foodies and like we will map out places that we want nice. to try whenever we get together, like sometimes years in advance of like looking up what places look interesting, their reviews, you know, what kind of things are, do they serve that they are known for and that kind of stuff. And Absolutely. just kind of like keeping track of like a whole list of stuff to potentially awesome. check out. Well, it sounds like uh, that James, Rhonda, we the three of us should get together and swap some notes because it. Uh, I've I've spent enough time with Rhonda to know that she's a bit of an a foodie as well. So awesome! Yeah, yeah. The the first thing we do. Well, I'm also probably more even more uh, like we roll into a new town. The first thing we do is we look for brewery brewery restaurants mm -hmm. or cidery restaurants because we like to try all of the beers and ciders and you know the local 
stuff because you know, living in the Pacific Northwest, we're kind of spoiled that way. Yeah. So wherever we go, that's what we look for. And then usually when you go to a place like that, then they're also doing like farm to table food mm-hmm. and they have unique stuff that goes along with it. So if you find a good brewery restaurant, no matter where you are, you always, you know, have have that option. So that's kind of my that's my that's my traveling. Cool. Thing. That's what I like to do. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Robert, for joining us today and sharing your passion for Big Fix. This has been great. Well, thanks for nerding and geeking out with me, both of you. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Robert. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today on Endpoint Management Today. This podcast is the brainchild of James Stewart and me. The program is edited by me and James, and our original music is from Dan Corcoran, Big Fix Specialist. 